Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar, and Oscar Race Checkpoint. Why? Because theaters are dying, officially, uh, but there's other stories that we can get into. That's one of the main ones. I am your co-host, Mike One. This is co-host, hopefully, with a rosier, maybe more optimistic outlook on the intro of this episode. Also, Mike. Well, I'm not dying, officially, (laughs) so that's good. I mean, I do have COVID. I cannot taste or smell. For like You're going on like weeks of this too. Two weeks of uh, sending you text messages of, well, I didn't smell that, or I didn't smell this, or I can't <laughs> taste this thing sandwich. And you would have thought that I, sh- I I would have gone on a diet just because why not? Like just because of you know appetite apathy. If you can't taste and you can't, you're like what's the point of yeah? Right. Exactly. But I was good for like two days, and now I'm eating waffles. I'm eating chicken parm. Multiple Can you dip meals. that donut? nut and honey and oil please there was a time where i was like why don't i try a donut and see if i taste the donut at dunkin donuts <laughs> i literally said that to myself and it was a rationale thinking that i could taste it and i, I bought there's a an irony here there's an irony to the man who was raised on the influence of food shows and commercials who complains about not enough food porn in his multi-million dollar blockbusters mm-hmm. now living the opposite of a food commercial life where nothing matters no taste no substance the only thing that matters is texture it's an identity crisis i have never <laughs> felt this lost before but thank god for the crown and the queen's gambit and we'll review them all at some point but thank god for all these movies that i'm watching doc nyc we're going to get into it today and thank god for all the movie news because we got a lot to sink our teeth into and that's where we're starting with movie news and you see mike was a little more uplifting and i can bring us right back down to (laughs) miserable miserable possible reality again as we have a lead story on this oscar race checkpoint as we go around the world of all things oscars and award season this is more to do with a blockbuster you can usually find our blockbuster stories in mmo weekly however because of the fallout and impact this may have on the movie industry just in general we're going to talk about it here as Wonder Woman 1984. Which could be an Oscar movie, Mike, by the way. Sorry to cut you off. It could be. Oh, good point. Fair point. Fair point. Uh, It's set to debut both in theaters and on HBO Max on Christmas Day 2020, and movie theaters will reportedly receive a much larger than 50-50 cut from from Wonder Woman 1984 domestic theatrical earnings. Internationally, the movie will debut exclusively in theaters on December 16th, a week earlier than its dual-platform release in North America. So Tom Brueggemann wrote an awesome article on IndieWire uh, describing this as a, quote, kick in the teeth to exhibitors. On the uh, on the flip side of that article, Rebecca Rubin of the Hollywood Reporter analyzed this as perhaps the best option with uh, a lot of great quotes in that article. I'll mm-hmm. I'll start with a CEO Jason Kalar quote where he basically said, "Wonder Woman, in the harsh reality of this pandemic, uh, means that we have to settle for watching things in our living room right now." As Americans, basically is what the quote amounted to. But Mm. I think, and we want to get into all the different angles of this, Mike, 
But I think the quote that I want to start from is actually from the AT&T CFO, John Stevens, who said, uh, quote, in a difficult situation, this move is a win-win. <laughs> <laughs> so when I stab you in the back, not metaphorically, but quite literally, and I say, listen, Mike... <laughs> This is a tough situation. I didn't want to stab you, but I think given the tough circumstances for you and I here, yeah. this is a win-win oh, no. is basically what this guy's saying, right? Because is a win-win what you call it when you take a definitive step in the direction of killing one of your long-standing partners? Is that what a win-win is, or am I missing something? If theaters were a character in Street Fighter right now, Mike, doing this move would be a Hadouken that sent their lifeline into blinking red and yellow territory. That is a video game analogy that I actually understand. So I played Street Fighter back in the day. I'm dating myself. But it also kind of played out literally over the weekend, that analogy you just made, because 700 movie theaters closed in North America, I believe 600 in the United States. Yeah, we're working backwards. Both Cineworld and Regal just raised major capital slash, quote unquote, their debt facility, whatever that means financially. I'm not smart enough to know. But basically, they raised their debt capacity to $450 million to $750 million to stay afloat. They got more lines of credit, basically, saying, please keep us alive to their debtors. Which is what AMC did months earlier, I believe, mm-hmm. a couple months into the pandemic, Michael. So... You have a set of questions that I think is really going to sum this up. Okay, so I went in, I I just had a flood of questions to my mind. Uh, You've done your best to do some research and help answer, and that's kind of how we work. Uh, You do the brunt of the work, and I just sit here and make fun of people, so that's how this is going to play out. Uh, My first question, why January for this movie? Like, what, what is WB... And AT&T basing this move off of, is it going to be off holiday subscription gifts of HBO Max subscriptions? Because to me, we talked, if you listen to the show six months ago, we said, Mm -hmm. even during the pandemic, how crazy the notion was that a superhero movie or a comic book movie, a WB movie, a DC movie or a Marvel movie would end up going on streaming. We said that notion to even think of was just crazy, even though it wasn't a pandemic. As it got more and more real, my thinking always was, well, if they're going to do it, it would be in response to an earnings call where they need to make up some lost number somewhere. And that's not going to be and isn't the case right now with this. So why are they putting this out in January? Well, I'm going to go off of what Disney Plus and Netflix is doing, because you you said it during that question, that Mike Francesa's question. <laughs> You kind of laid out the premise in that you and I thought previously, perhaps wrongly, we don't know, but we thought the big tentpole money, the big tentpole earnings for a Wonder Woman 1984, that was not available in terms of profits for this movie. And yet we have now seen Netflix not going, not just one multi-hundred million dollar uh, blockbuster property with the Irishman, but they have just greenlit The Gray Man, which is a $200 million property. Mm-hmm. We just saw Disney Plus take its $150 million Mulan and put it on Disney Plus after doing some PVOD. And then we just saw them put Soul, which is $150 million, for Christmas Day. So the two biggest entertainment goliaths in the industry 
are taking tentpole sized properties and they're putting it on their streaming services, indicating to us who follow the money, that the money is in fact there. So I kind of wanted to look at their subscriber numbers real quick and basically kind of do some math. Because let's look at the upside right now. Netflix has 193 million worldwide subscribers as of April, Michael. That number's probably gone up. I believe it has gone up because of other quarterly earnings reported, right? Okay. They are at 15 bucks a month and they're able to raise it to nearly 20 bucks a month, right? right? We talked about their profits from last year being 20 billion in pro- well 20 billion in earnings over uh, 15 billion spent so they were making 125 percent on what what they're uh, what they're spending on content at least mm-hmm. they have more overhead we realize this but of course that's a great margin Disney plus they were at 60 million middle of the summer in terms of subs and now they're at 73 million as of October. So we have seen Disney Plus, who has angled Mulan, whatever Mulan did for it, we don't know. But more importantly, I think Hamilton, they've put Hamilton on there, which is must-see TV. Mandalorian Season 2 is must-see TV, Mm -hmm. right? Must-see streaming service. They're going to put Soa on there. And they have gained 13 million subscriptions at $7 a month or at the $20 a month with the bundle, Hulu, ESPN Plus, or whatever. So obviously... Do the math at twenty dollars times you know thirteen million or whatever. The money is there for HBO Max because HBO Max is only at thirty six million subscribers, Mike. And a lot of those subscribers have been grandfathered in because if you uh, are, are if you have HBO on certain AT and T cable companies, you automatically get HBO Max. So a lot of these articles, when they analyze this, they're like, we uh, WB has to activate a lot of their subscribers it's not just about adding new ones it's activating the ones that they have to get them to start watching hbo hbo max and that rolls into one of my next questions about this is how much of a success will this move be for hbo max and will it help them rebound from their what i think and a lot of other people thought was a very underwhelming borderline disastrous rollout in terms of marketing i mean you talked about those numbers if we're going apples to apples with other streaming services out there, yes, HBO Max is still the newest, but it's also quite unimpressive, I would say. Well, unimpressive in terms of the numbers, right. like we said, thirty-six million compared to what Disney is doing, double that, right. and what Netflix has, so it's like a fifth of Netflix. But again, I'm guessing they've gone up with the witches, etc. They put on a lot of new stuff. The French Prince of Bel Air reunion special was like the favorite thing I've watched in the last year was of television. Of other, media too, yeah. Maybe other than Hamilton, I'm shocked that an interview show like that was so good and it was also a reunion. I mean, I watched that show my whole life and it was just, it brought back so many memories of, uh, uh, of being a kid and watching that sitcom. But I think you're right. It was a modest loss uh, launch for HBO Max. It was modest. And they needed much more. So they have been dedicating some major dollars to the, uh, to the you know, their future content buys. We've seen it with uh, Zack Snyder's uh, Justice League Redux, whatever, whatever that thing's called, the Snyder <laughs> Cut. The Snyder Make. They've put huge money into, you know, Friends and South Park and Rick and Morty and all this stuff. And now 
they really need to get that number up to what is just essential viewership. You right. know, where most audience uh, members love HBO Max, and they got a great catalog. They really do. They have one of the more impressive catalogs of of just content that vis a vis. We all the time we're talking about how Disney Plus specifically needed to do more, and it's kind of bewildering they're doing so well. And the, for Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. If you go apples to apples in content between what Disney Plus has available and what HBO Max has available in terms of depth of library, I, I don't think it's all that close. I mean, I know there's the Disney classics and the Marvel films, but there's such a wide variety on HBO Max. It's it's a little bewildering to me how they've been able to, I'm trying to not speak so negatively about it, but not have the greatest rollout, not have the greatest marketing to why they're in a position to have to activate users, let's say. They have a great library that everybody could pay for elsewhere, that everybody has, you know, at least piecemeal in terms of their other subscription services, in terms of their own Blu-ray collections, in terms of the fact that it's a lot, you know, that they just have on HBO, right? Right. They're they're trying to get people over to Max, which is $5 more, which is the future of their business, right? So they're having a, a lot of trouble getting their their current viewership over to max and then getting new subscribers like Disney did with even an onward. And I don't, I don't think Artemis Fox moved the needle Artemis, Artemis, Fowl, yeah. Artemis, Fowl. <laughs> Artemis, some kind of animal. Yeah. Whatever that movie was, I, I would doubt that that moved the needle, <laughs> but like Disney rolled up with an essential viewing, uh, you know, with, with the Mandalorian. Yeah. They launched with something that was must-see TV for every Star Wars plan on, fan on the planet. And I don't think Max had that essential viewing, but look, they're coming out with the Snyder Cut later on. For DC fans, that's a must-see. And, of course, Wonder Woman 1984 is a must-see. Yeah, this might be a huge... This might be a huge move for them. And, you know, we're going to go over the numbers in a second, but it's very feasible that they can remake their money. All right, so let's talk about the here and now, uh, deviate from HBO Max. Let's talk about the impact this might have on theaters. And is there any possible bright side for theaters in this move of HBO Max going and having with the Wonder Woman 1984 rollout? Well, for domestic theaters, the bright side is very gray or or dim. (laughs) Or in other words, not bright, I guess. So dark, yeah. Dark. Uh, look, Tenant did open to 20 million when we had 70% of movie theaters opening or opened at reduced capacity, Mike. And 20 million is better than the three to five million dollar openings that we've seen for the Kevin Costner, Diane Lane movie, Let Him Go, for Freaky, for New Mutants mm. that we reviewed, right? So I think less theaters, many less theaters are open now. And who knows what'll be open Christmas time compared to Labor Day and when Tenant opened. But let's be honest, whatever business Wonder Woman 1984 does, it's a four quadrant movie. Whatever that business is, it's better business than just these indie films or just these, you know, specialty films or these, you know, like focus feature films. So how is this different than telling theaters you get what you get and you won't be upset? (laughs) That's exactly what it is. (laughs) The big thing about Wonder Woman 1984 and the big part of this deal is that internationally it is not going to have a dual release plan as of now that that I can tell. It is going to release... Uh, on the 16th of December exclusively in theaters and we have seen throughout this fall China Korea we have seen 
you know, $500 million properties, successful releases in China. We have seen Tenant make $300 million overseas this fall. And I would argue that Tenant is perhaps half as, you know, marketable overseas. I Can you imagine, well, you haven't seen Tenant yet, but Tenant would be the most infuriating movie to read. Like if you can't speak English or if you can't speak English really yeah. well, I mean, that's a confusing ass movie and it's d- doubly confusing if you have to read that movie. So I can't imagine, I, I mean, I would imagine Wonder Woman 1984 being much more of a draw than Tenet. Now, obviously COVID is the big variable here. It's it's resurging everywhere. It's a dark winter on this entire planet. It's not just uh, here. It's worse here, but what does that, what effect does that have on the international box office? Does HBO Max wind up co-releasing this there if, if things continue to get, get worse overseas? I don't know. And that still only helps global theater chains. I mean, you're talking about independent or small-run American theater chains. They're kind of being totally left out in the cold with this, even though they'll get what they can get from if they're lucky enough to get a license to show Wonder Woman 1984 here. But tons more questions. Remember the James Bond box office splits, and remember any time we do a box office split on this show. Gone are the days when the domestic box office rules all. Right. So Wonder Woman was probably going to make $700 million elsewhere, and then maybe if they were lucky, $500 million here. And maybe right. uh, my, my guess would have been like five hundred, eight hundred. Even though the last one was four hundred, four hundred, that's that would be my guess on the uh, uh, on the split. And now you're obviously not coming close to four hundred million domestically. You're, you'd be lucky with fifty, just like Tenant did. Right. I don't think you'd even get that. So they're trying to make their half a billion back via streaming subs. Can they still make five hundred million overseas? I don't know. All of the people in these articles from the trades are saying, Mike, they're saying that this is a longer term investment for HBO Max to get HBO Max off the ground, essentially, and they're going to be taking less profits for Wonder Woman 1984, at least on the front end. Hmm. Okay. So let's talk about if they are ending up taking less profits or maybe in an alternate world where they have this giant hit on their hands. So if this is a success and let's say HBO Max subs do go up by some insane number like 50 to 60 percent or they probably make at least close to the hundreds of millions a Wonder Woman film would if it was released domestically, why would WB bother putting out another superhero movie in theaters ever again if they can keep every single dollar they make doing it this way and it's comparable so that's a great question and the truth is neither of us know and and the truth probably is wb doesn't know Uh, it's an impossible question to answer right now because we truly don't understand how mass audiences will pay for new movies in the future how are they going to change their movie theater going habits after the pandemic when it is safe again whenever that whenever comes 2028 yeah yeah is there an after the pandemic how long does it take i mean how many theaters survive i it, it the, the landscape is changing so much right. uh, but we can follow the money that uh, the rest of the studios is sinking into their future slates we have seen them 
move all of their multi-hundreds of millions of dollars worth of properties to 2021 to 2022 in the hopes that movie theaters open up again and that exhibition returns to the tried and true model of years past. This is all assuming, and this is kind of something that you busted my chops for in the last episode, and rightfully so. I, again, and you kind of underscored it, is after the pandemic even a thing? I understand theaters are taking a bigger rake, but if they lose superhero movies and they lose tentpole blockbusters like this, I mean, God forbid Marvel does the same thing with Black Widow and finds massive success on Disney+, Plus instead of pushing it out to 2021, Aren't blockbusters basically the last vestige of necessity for multiplexes? According to mass audiences, I would say that the largest percentage of their earnings are due to these tentpoles. Absolutely 100%. And you can yell at me for the specialty box office all day. You can talk to me about the mid-budget movie successes that are out there. Again, put those dollars and cents up next to the tent poles, and it's not even right. close. Right. It's, it's, it's pennies, yeah. I, I do think there are more variables here, though, because how do audiences stream their movies post-pandemic? As many questions as you can ask about the movie theater business, you can talk, you can ask on the flip side uh, with streaming services because is there a subscriber bubble right now during the pandemic? Is the demand for at-home entertainment higher than it will ever be? I mean, what entertainment costs do most audiences shift post-pandemic? Are they going to choose between some streaming services and cut out the others? Are they going to choose all the streaming services and cut cords, cut their cable companies? Yeah, or- that's what I was going to say. Cable is the one which has already been dying, and we know that, and cord cutters and, and the younger generation not even starting with them, but and their rising prices. But cable, to me, would yeah. seemingly be the one that's in most danger with this type of move, uh, next to theaters anyway. Yeah, especially if live sports are are heading towards, Mm -hmm. and not just live TV, essentially, if that's heading towards these streaming services, then, like we've theorized all along, do these major streamers basically take place, uh, take the place of network television, right? Right. When network television was at its heyday, uh, I don't know, but... Netflix is, uh, you know, established two hundred million dollars or two hundred million subscribers. Boom, they're established. Nothing's really shaken that behemoth. Even if they went down twenty million, they're also a bad. totally different animal versus what's out there in the streaming landscape right now. But they've proven to cons- yeah, they've proven to consumers that there are there's essential viewing on Netflix. Mm-hmm. If you're not subscribed to Netflix, you're going to miss out on the next big thing. Right. And you're going to be the you're going to be missing out. Bottom line, does Disney Plus establish as much after all the Marvel and Star Wars and Pixar and Disney animation shows come there? Because they basically they have buoyed up their service based on their catalog for kids predominantly some tv series for kids the mandalorian and then a few new movies they have not even released all of their big ticket items which are television series well and that and they're the lion waiting in the weeds too they stand to benefit the most from just sitting back and watching what plays out here in terms of numbers with what wonder woman does because if wonder woman 1984 does this it's also a female-driven superhero movie, p- 
part of a cinematic like why wouldn't Disney say well we have a Marvel thing that's very similar that can probably do similar numbers for us and obviously it's not an apples to apples comparison but they got to be the ones most interested the most interested party here in terms of the sheer gross that this can do for max subscriptions you know Amazon Prime put coming to America as a 120 million dollar buy and that's coming out in March which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. They could have put it out during Christmas, but they went with One Night in Miami and movies like that to kind of lead their Christmas slate instead. But I, I, I think it's 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 interesting that Wonder Woman 1984, as good as Soul is, as good as the entire Netflix slate is, and Amazon and, and Apple, I mean, it, stack up Wonder Woman 1984 against any of those, and Wonder Woman 1984 is absolutely the biggest draw the biggest movie the biggest uh incentive for people to get any streaming service that we've seen yet so my question now is what does this mean to hbo max it might mean more to hbo max than it would to a netflix because everybody already has netflix or I'm, i know it does so i mean they their upside they have nowhere to go but up I mean, oh it's, they could it's a huge trump card tens of millions of new subscribers it's from just trump this card. one movie and it's a it's kind of a double-edged sword because it is a WB property, and Eric Weber's been a big proponent of this too. We've mentioned it a few times as well. But if if Tenant wasn't the play, the 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 canary in the the theatrical coal mine, and Wonder Woman was, everybody is kind of agreed that studios have not helped out theaters at all with getting people back to theaters when the pandemic was in recession before this second wave came. So if Wonder Woman was already played as the one that's going into theaters, HBO Max wouldn't even have this card to play. Tenet probably wouldn't. I mean, maybe it brings in similar subscription numbers for HBO Max if those two were reverse, but Wonder Woman could have helped theaters a lot more with a play if it was played like Tenet was. I do think that the biggest issue for movie theaters with or a big issue, we've, we've kind of litigated this already, but the fact that tenant didn't have another movie on top of it a couple weeks later to keep people going to the movies, to keep people realizing that you can safely go. Oh, you could even and, make that argument too. Sure. If Wonder Woman was played on top of tenant. Yeah, absolutely. However, do I believe Wonder Woman 1984 would have made, more than a hundred million at the domestic box office? I don't believe that. No, I'm sorry. As much as because I, I think Tenant was a huge draw in its own right. I just don't think people were willing to to go to movie theaters. Right. In but this what, would a hundred million have been a different? You know, would that have made a difference versus with the fifty or sixty that Tenant ended up landing on the 40, 50, 60, I don't remember the correct number, but what if 100 million domestically have been a different number, if it, or 90 million? You know, I, 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 I don't think you disagree that Wonder Woman would have made more than Tenet, do you? Correct. No, I do not disagree. Right. I, but if nothing's behind it, if you don't get people sure. going back sure. to the movies again, or if the COVID numbers change, or when the COVID numbers change, I don't think there's anything that get, I don't any movie right. that gets people back into theaters. Like I can't go because I'm quarantining for this is going to be my third week of serious quarantine. I have COVID, and I think I still have it. Or it's latent, or not latent. It's uh, it's past me, but whatever. I can't go to see Mank in theaters that right. I wanted to go. Right. I can't go to to see the movies that I want. I want to see Freaky. I can't go. I won't go. It's it's just bewildering and maybe borderline sinister, but maybe this is just me being negative that AT&T is totally getting away with saying, well, there's nothing else we can do, theater. Sorry, we have to put this on Max when the option was there all along to say, hey, theaters, we'll throw you this bone. Maybe you can make a little more money with it. But 
Oh, crazy. Uh, it's strange that they're gambling with such big ticket items or that they're testing the waters with such big ticket items. I'm a little surprised by that. I want, you know, it's almost like a a fulfilling prophecy where you took away the mid budget movies and it's only the tent poles. It's only the huge gambles. And they had, you know, which should help theaters, but, (laughs) but they had Dune tenant and wonder woman and, they needed to make money. I just, I, I think this is a gamble of an entirely different sort. Like they can, they can perhaps get, you know, I mean, let, let's, let's look at the numbers real quick. $15 a subscription. Yeah. Right? I don't think it's a gamble, Mike. I really don't. Well, that's the thing. Like it's, it's almost assured to make its money back. Exactly. I would agree with you. Exactly. Like, it's not a gamble the, for the studio. Here's where the gamble comes in. I think like you can have a modest gain, for Wonder Woman 1984 domestically, where let's say if you add 10 million subscribers for three months, you're making $450 million, mm-hmm. simple math. If you gain 5 million subscribers for six months, you're you're gaining the same number. You know, if, the, if it's a larger number, like something that, uh, you know, the, the Borat movie, and if you get viewership like the, anywhere close to what Netflix movies have done, I mean, if you get those 13 million new subscribers like Disney Plus mm-hmm. kind of got that boost from late summer to early fall, which I don't think is out of the realm with a property this big, right. then you're clearly making a half a billion dollars domestically. The problem is if you don't have the $500 million, you know, in addition to that overseas at in theaters – you know, if COVID comes back with a vengeance over there, now you're looking at Wonder Woman 1984 not making money. So, I, I mean, with all that in mind, and now we all know that all of us are going to be glued to our televisions on Christmas Day. We have kind of a double feature. We got to get rid of the presents early because we all have to be parked in front of for Disney Plus's <laughs> soul. And now HBO Max's Wonder Woman 1984 what are the odds that whether knowingly or unknowingly, this is the start of a new tradition? I mean, are we in an era now where this is the kickoff to us having these streaming services battling for eyes over the holidays, putting out these huge budget movies every Christmas now? So I understand why you say, quote unquote, new tradition, because you're watching movies at home with the in, family. In your home, yeah. Streaming, and they're new movies, right? right. They're, they're brand spanking new movies. Right. Whereas I would argue available in your living room. Yeah. I would argue that throughout my entire life and I'm, I'm a movie guy, but throughout my entire life, I've gone to the movie theaters around Christmas time. And I'm going to miss that terribly if I can't do it this Christmas. And I do think for most people in some way, shape or form with family, with friends, they would go to the movies, most Christmases, most holiday seasons to see some movie or another. And even if they only went to a movie or two a year, that would be one of the high traffic times, right? But we saw Little Woman multiple times last year around the holidays. <laughs> yeah, but we, you know we're weird. Like we right. go to the movies every week when we can in other years. But I'm just saying, the casual moviegoer goes to the movies during Christmas. Now, you're yeah. right. This is a new tradition to see brand spanking new movies on streaming services at home. Now, how do people watch these? Do they make them event, an, an event on Christmas Day? Does One Night in Miami become an event mm. for people on Amazon Prime? I, I just think there's something for everybody that week there, that, and it's going to be pretty incredible. And I guess one of the silver linings of this whole deal is that we do get new movies at Christmas time, and maybe News of the World is a PVOD option. 
at that point as well. I, and I there's a thirst for new content in general. Netflix just put out their numbers for what people did with the Queen's Gambit in its first 28 days. Now, you're not talking new subscribers there necessarily, but you, those are views. It was something like 60-some-odd million views in the first 28 it. days. So uh, people are starved for new content, as they always are. This could be a whole new type of, you know, horizon we're, we're entering right now. It's just a really, really fascinating time for the industry and just so much to worry about in terms of theaters i think there's a lot to worry about in terms of theaters i i do hope they get through it i wonder how things changed fast forward two years from now i really do i wonder if these windows stay closed if these new deals we're about to mention stay the way they are but we we got some other you know kind of semi-related stories here mike yeah so obviously want to hear your thoughts about all of that we'll move on and and try to pivot to some other related stories on theatrical versus PVOD versus streaming real quick here. A couple announcements. Disney is now mulling premieres for Pinocchio, Peter Pan, and Cruella all through Disney+. Plus. So I wonder if this is more of a live-action movie. Their live-action movies haven't played as well in theaters, some of them. Or maybe this is a response to Mulan. I don't know, but... I, I, I would think if they're going to respond to Mulan, they do the exact opposite. Because Mulan... The Disney could not be happy with the numbers Mulan did on streaming. So I yeah. would think, if anything, that would scare them off from playing live action, unless they just totally chalk that up to that being more of an international property, more so than something from one of their Disney classics, like a Peter Pan live action would be, or something like that. Again, they kind of boosted the subscribers, so that which might be all they care about right now to grow. Is that because you think that of was Mulan? because of Mulan? Though I don't know. I, mean, I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I do know that's a thirteen million dollars, thirteen million subscriber game since after we had Hamilton numbers of sixty million. So again, is it Mulan? Is it just the whole product? Is it the you know that Mandalorian was coming out with a season two? I don't know. Again, but. Like, I wonder if they're telling themselves, okay, if Mulan can't make money in theaters, then how is a reduxed Pinocchio or Peter Pan or Cruella DeVille? These are all old properties being live action remaked. You know, it's not like The Lion King. It's not like it's Aladdin. It's not like it's something that the uh, movie going public in the sweet spot. It's not, it's not going to make a billion dollars like Beauty and the Beast, right? I mean, are they they're wondering if they mined the 1990 Disney movie nostalgia yet? I mean, maybe Little Mermaid will be the last, last of them that and has yeah, a chance they, to I do mean, a billion dollars. They still have, they're still greenlighting live action. I mean, they just greenlit a live action Lilo and Stitch remake. You know, they have faith in that genre still. So as much as we all kind of derive, I mean, look at Aladdin, for Christ's sake. I know you're. it's kind of almost exactly what you're talking about in that it was that sweet spot, that 1990s era remake type thing. But you can't say these films don't make them money in general. Yeah, and I, I want to see Pinocchio, Peter Pan, and Cruella. I've wanted to see all of these live action, action remakes despite getting burned by a bunch of them that haven't yeah. been good. Even like The Lion King, which I know made money, I didn't enjoy it. So... I don't know. I've, I've been very down on those. a lot of those remakes You're not overall. Alone. You are not alone, sir. But if they know that, all right, we get 3 million new subscribers from one of these, wow. I mean, yeah. it's worth it to them over half a year, like we were saying with the subs. Also, how willing are the uncles and aunts and mothers and fathers of the world to shell out 8 bucks a month if it means keeping their children distracted with a new live action, you know? <laughs> I mean, my, my niece and nephew adored The Lion King, the live action remake. Well, so there you go. It may not matter what 
people like you and I think about it anyway. <laughs> it probably does not matter what you and I think about a lot of things, but definitely that. Michael, Universal reached a PVOD release window deal like they did with AMC, but now with two other major chains, Cinemark here in the U.S. and abroad and Cineplex in Canada. The biggest change and the biggest twist now is that Universal and Cinemark in particular, they agreed on language that holds if a movie makes more than $50 million in its first seven days, it must this is very new language uh, in this legal uh, dispute and these negotiations, Mike. $50 million in the first seven days, if it makes that, it must stay in theaters at least 31 days rather than the 17-day uh, you know, uh, minimum for, for other movies. I like that. I like that threshold. Uh, I also, you know, we, we talked about, we talked about, we talked about, we talked about. This is like the fourth time I'm saying it, but we have talked about how when a movie makes at least in the old format, when theaters were still a thing that were reliable domestically, uh, when a movie made $30 million in its opening, that usually meant it was at minimum a $100 million domestic opening film. And that's the type of movie that theaters want to keep in their in their houses for months at a time. So that kind of makes sense. I don't mind those benchmark numbers. $50 million. If you have a $50 million opening, I don't know why a theater would let that go to PVOD within 17 or 28 days at all anyway that that seems a little bizarre but i like to have those benchmarks in place anyway but universal at least to me seems like they're willing to play ball with theaters with regard to pvod release dates i guess you know just kind of related to what we just spent a half hour talking about the big question is does this even matter by the time theaters open back up or whatever we get with them does it even matter is a huge question but at least there is language in here and there's kind of a, an admission that if a movie is making money in theaters it needs to stay in theaters and universal is admitting as much universe i mean that's that's reassuring in a way because they're coming to this deal together michael so cinemark and universal are saying that if it's a hit in theaters it it needs to stay in theaters to make an optimum amount of money they both recognize that fact at least for the first month there's and also a snake in the grass here, though, because for the foreseeable future, it doesn't matter what Universal puts out in theaters. Nothing's going to hit $50 million in its first seven days. Yeah. How long does this deal go for? Is yeah. it if I, I, like, I didn't read the fine print on this, these new deals yet, the same way we studied the AMC deal. So I'm, I'm very curious if the fine print is going to last. Is this a pandemic-only deal? Do things go back the way they were? I mean, everybody can say anything they want. Like, you have all the executives here saying that, you know, we believe in theatrical. We want, we want movies that are making money in theaters to stay in theaters. That's what they're saying. Is that just lip service? Right. And, and do these minimums matter much more than we think? Or, you know, does this, you know, almost restrict these movies from movie theaters at a certain point because people with major streaming services do they say uh, at warner brothers hey we're just not going to release this movie in theaters at all because i know i can gain five million new subscribers that's, for the next six months yeah, that's that's the, the biggest thing billion dollar question and that's what uh 
Wonder Woman and maybe Black Widow, maybe something. I have these all these films. And then you add into it, Mike, that not all of these films are going to be able to play in 2021 and 2022. Like, they're not going to want to go head to head against each other because these studios are going to have to make as much money as they can. And they're not going to want to be undercut by the newest, you know, supposed to have been released in 2020 film that's going to be released the next week. It, it, there's a billion freaking variables at play here that are just crazy and running into each other and on top of all of that we don't know what the theatrical experience is even going to be at the end of the day once this COVID era has passed us by and I mean are theaters just going to be bought out by a conglomerate that we've speculated on numerous times are they just going to harken back to the, the single run days where you have stu- uh, theaters just dedicated to showing one film at a time like a, a 100 or 150 seat theater and that's it and the multiplexes are a thing of the past I don't know when will movies get healthy again? Will movies, yeah. theaters, get healthy again? I mean, there's two questions now, and it might become time-sensitive to the studios who are either trying to prop up their streaming services before the streaming wars and before everybody's pocketbook gets tight, before the demand on the, with the streaming bubble that is now goes down or before that bubble bursts, right? I mean, where does everybody's entertainment do- dollars go when you can go out into the world again and go to bars and go i mean it's a major change i mean all kinds of major changes are coming i mean how much have habits changed in terms of movie theaters we don't necessarily know but the you know the question i've had from the beginning is when do movie studios have to make profits Mm -hmm. you know right now movie theater theaters are, are leveraged but we don't understand the big studio economics well if the studios are pressed for cash then theaters are screwed because you can keep 100% of the dollars you put on your own in-house streaming network, you know? Well, that's... I mean, I wonder why WB and AT&T had to make these moves now. Right. And that what I keep rationalizing to myself is that they want to, based on the opportunity for HBO Max and the upside for HBO Max, or maybe it's the risk to HBO Max, and they know that it won't survive, it won't reach that essential level of subscribers to, to keep it going once the streaming wars hit and once the subscriber bubble bursts, right? I mean, if they don't get it up now, it's it's kind of a now or never thing. And what happens if, if studios take the at-home and totally embrace the at-home experience and we see, you know, Netflix getting into bed with Samsung to create the perfect 85 inch flat screen that's available with this home entertainment, you know, that type of thing where they're totally trying to just outright replace the theatrical experience. Just a billion questions on the horizon here. We know that the movie theaters, especially indie theaters that don't play these, you know, big budget films, unfortunately, they're the first casualty unless something somebody steps in. They're the first casualty here. And so they're on they're on the front lines, and that's the scary thing for us, especially as Oscar pundits yeah. who love a balanced diet of all kinds of films. Oh boy! All right, interesting time in the industry, and <laughs> that industry is the awards industry. And with that, we do have some awards news. We had the SAG submission deadline pass this past Thursday at five p.m. Pacific. Uh, we have not heard or seen anything concrete about that yet. We will keep our eye on it as it keeps going. We have some festivals and awards to touch base on and keep up with. The Camera Image Festival Golden Frog winner was Nomadland, Michael. So. This is fascinating because three of the last five Golden Froggers, 
from this Polish held, Polish held uh, festival, Michael, celebrating cinematography. They have been nominated for the Oscar for Best Cinematography. Yeah, a bit of a telltale sign here. Those winners were Carol and Lion from 2015 and 16, as well as last year's Joker winning the Golden Froggy. Yeah, so, I mean, as we expected, Nomadland has an allure to uh, Academy members, to film festivals, and I do think... It's going to really persuade, you know, the branches at uh, at the our academy to vote for it because DP Joshua James Richards, I mean, he set up so many gorgeous, you know, magic hour setups there. Mm. For uh, I'm, I'm exhausted after that Wonder Woman conversation, but <laughs> for Chloe Zhao, and I, I just think that cinematography really lands with with uh, with these branches. It's going to be just so. So I'm trying to think of a synonym for fascinating or interesting, but just one of those <laughs> that to see what Nomadland does, because there, I can already see the swell of support. People are already talking about it as it's a given in all these categories, which it is. It will be nominated. We know that it seems to have the strongest legs out of pretty much anything we've seen thus far. But I, it just to me doesn't feel like your typical Academy movie. And maybe that's because of 2020 and, and I don't know. And there is definite crossover with the golden frog award being nominated in cinematography at the Oscars, as we know, however, the golden frog winner has not actually won the best cinematography category on Academy Sunday since 2008 slumdog millionaire. So maybe hmm. nomad land can break that streak. Uh, really quick, I wanted to talk about the final draft awards, Mike, mm-hmm. and Aaron Sorkin is going to accept this year's Zeitgeist Award. Steve McQueen and uh, Sofia Coppola are also receiving Storyteller Awards. But, you know, we have an, uh, we have a screenplay categories that are starting to take shape this year. Ann Thompson wrote a great article on it. But, you know, the final draft awards mean something because last year Quentin Tarantino was honored. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood made it into that category. Many thought that it was a front runner for that category. Uh, Lulu Wong won the best newcomer. Stephen Canals of uh, of Pose won on the TV side. So uh, I, I do think that that might uh, tip us off on some contenders. And seeing Sofia Coppola there, Aaron Sor- can we expect it but seeing Sofia Coppola gives us some hope for on the rocks yeah it's a loaded uh, field too some big names there for people that we do expect to compete in a couple categories going forward in the screenplay both uh, original and adapted going forward so that's kind of cool we also have the Critics' Choice Documentary Film Award winners were announced. Michael Dick Johnson is Dead won Best Feature and Best Director for Kirsten Johnson. Uh, these are perhaps the biggest awards of the night. Dick Johnson is Dead has all sorts of momentum now, so naturally it will not be nominated in the doc feature category, right? Right. The last yeah. best, uh, the last three of these winners and Best Feature were Apollo 11, Won't You Be My Neighbor, and Jane. That sounds right. <laughs> Three Oscar snubs, which brought about my wrath in a couple episodes ago. So I'm, I'm absolutely upset that Dick Johnson is dead and won these awards. Just make, furious at all its success. To, to make matters worse, you have to go back to 2016 and OJ Made in America to the last time a Best Director winner at the Critics' Choice Documentary Film Awards made the Oscar nom in the documentary feature category. So, you know, Dick Johnson is dead. The double jinx here by the critics. I'm terrified. It is a hard, it's such a heartwarming tale. Maybe it'll speak (laughs) to people that want happiness in their awards for 2020. (laughs) I Uh, hope so. Let's say this was 2016, though, Michael. Gun to your head. Dick Johnson is dead or The Last Dance? The Last Dance. Yeah. No no offense. I mean, The Last Dance is the best. 
best TV I've watched all year, and I watched The Crown. I just yeah. finished watching The Crown. I just finished watching The Queen's Gambit. Uh, other documentaries honored here. My Octopus Teacher won Best Nature Doc and Cinematography. Boy State, a favorite here of MMO and as well the Nomcast, uh, mm-hmm. won Best Political Doc, MLK FBI, won Best Archival Footage Doc, Athlete A, Tide Ali and Cavett for Best Sports Doc, and Beastie Boys Story tied the Go-Go's for Best Music Doc. Michael, does any of that matter? So last year, Honeyland won Best First Doc, and American Factory won Best Political Doc. Those are the only two feature winners last year that got Oscar-nominated, period. Now, of course, Honeyland got the double nom in international and documentary features, mm-hmm. and American Factory won the Oscar, period, end of sentence, as a short film, won both the Oscar and the Critics' Choice here. Uh, this year, That we don't get any helpful crossover because St. Louis Superman won this year, and it was already nominated at last year's Oscars, so mm-hmm. that doesn't help us either. To answer your question finally, n- no, I am very skeptical, Michael, <laughs> of how the critics, us critics, and I include myself here, view the documentary categories. There seems to be a major disconnect with how the actual documentary film branch at the academy views these so you think huh we've seen ed thompson and eric Cohn put out some great pieces on IndieWire this week i listened to their uh their screen talk podcast they talked about a bunch of the movies that i've been touting on th- on, on this show that you know doc nyc is still you know you got one more week in terms of an encore i think they made enough money that the encore is allowing them to make even more money everybody's on board so they're doing another week of doc nyc oh awesome so I, I actually may catch some of the shorts i'm going to try this week it's hard. I have COVID. I get tired easily. I don't know if I can watch 15. It's more than 15 shorts. I was looking at the program. I got a $36. It's a lot of short films, documentaries. Anyway. Your life is difficult. It is difficult. It is, I don't know if I could do it. I'm not going to promise. But here's the biggest thing that I would say. Like, you can watch Collective on, on film at Lincoln Center right now. You can watch it anywhere on, on demand, virtual cinemas, and at Doc NYC. I still think... The Mole Agent, The Mole Agent, Once Upon a Time in Venezuela. These are three movies that are going to get p- potential double consideration in international feature and in best documentary. To me, the big takeaway is collective. And I reviewed it a couple episodes ago, Mike. This is one that I agree with the IndieWire folks. I think this is the front runner in the documentary feature category right now for a lot of reasons that I mentioned. And I'm not sure that Dick Johnson is Dead is ever going to be a movie that kind of resonates with that group. I mean, it's a right. critical favorite, but I think they like the hardcore journalism. And yeah, I think, it just seems too feel-good. Right. It, it's very feel-good. I love it. I love her. I love Dick Johnson. I love Kirsten Johnson. We can't have that much love in our hearts when we're <laughs> documentary filmmakers, the best of the best. I mean, they're doing God's work out there. They're out there in roughing it. I mean, how many documentaries are going to come out about on the pandemic, after the pandemic, because they're out in the weeds right now, all of these right. filmmakers. But look, I mean, like something like Collective is probably thought very highly in that branch. Uh, something like A Thousand Cuts that I just saw at Doc NYC, Mike, this is a, a political documentary that could get nominated over something like a boy state at the end of the day. I mean, this is about the attack on journalism in the Philippines with real heroes, real life heroes on the ground there. And Maria Ressa, she's the head of the Rattler and she's getting attacked by conservative fake newsers. And it's just a disaster, absolute disaster. 
disaster and attack on their democracy. It's a documentary like that that might hit the same notes as Boy State, but just take it from a different perspective, a much more hardcore journalistic documentary perspective that I think that branch values a little more. Now, we'll see. At and the, the Academy the does love, I mean, not necessarily the doc branch, but the Academy just overall does love making statements and drawing parallels between, you know, the art of cinema and real life and what's happening here. And boy, does that sentence that you just described, the uh, the whole, that, that documentary there sound familiar. <laughs> yeah, so something like Collective, something like A Thousand Cuts, even a 76 Days, although that's kind of on, on my fringe uh, outside looking in. I just think they get considered perhaps more than the Dick Johnson is dead or even a totally under control or an all in the fight for democracy. These are partisan American made movies that I wonder if that branch values as highly. And and I wonder if we're going to get what we want, because I love those movies, too. Totally under control. It's on Hulu right now. All in the fight for democracy. Hugely important on Amazon Prime right now. I've reviewed them in the past. I love them. They're they're kind of in in my top five, but I don't know if they're in the documentary uh, film branch. I mean, they'll pick something like, you know, The Cave from last year, that, that, you know, heart-wrenching documentary that's on the ground there in the Syrian war crisis. They'll pick something like that or like A Thousand Cuts instead. Educational and uh, putting a spotlight and educating people, but providing a bright line and providing some hope to the issue you may not have even known a thing about seems to be the doc category sweet spot. And that's why the Mr. Rogers films and maybe the Dick Johnsons. and I mean, RBG is the most propaganda e feel good e type of doc we've had in the last few That's years true. that actually did get nominated. That's you know? true, and that could be the exception that proves the rule right. against what I'm saying. Right. In a way. So Well, I, I, I'm trying to say I, I agree with you. Those are the types that don't usually make it through. And I, I think there's reason to be concerned if you're a big Dick Johnson is dead fan. I absolutely agree with you. Well I just think it it's doesn't feel quite as essential, right? As the mm-hmm. movie about the pandemic or the two movies about the pandemic or it, uh, as the movie about the healthcare all in, all, system. It doesn't feel as all encompassing. Well, think about the stakes involved with the movie where, you know, the LBGTQ community is being hunted down and murdered right, in Russia. Right, right. You know, I mean, it's just, I, however good the films are, and I love Dick Johnson's Den. I think it's a, you know, a B plus, if not an A minus film, it's probably got a higher grade in my book. But that 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 branch is just rightfully so taking into account the issues on the table, and I don't right. blame them necessarily, especially when you have twenty movies and there and, and ten of them about world changing nightmare issues that you have to you know make people aware of. You make a lot of good points. Uh, I think the bottom line there is if you are a huge fan of Dick Johnson is dead. Now is officially time to worry when it comes to <laughs> that movie's success uh, coming Academy Sunday. We can start wrapping up with some trailer thoughts. And we did a whole big blowout of contender trailer thoughts a couple episodes ago. That's not going to be the case here, Michael. No, just a couple uh, new trailers that mean a lot to us and that, that will mean a lot to award season potentially. So let's, uh, let's, let's get in and out of here, Mike. I think it's important to talk about the One Night in Miami trailer that'll be coming from Amazon Prime. This is their first trailer. I'm surprised it took them so long to put this out. Yes, I've, already, I've already reviewed this film on our film festival variety show. Go back and hear 10 minutes from me on that. So my thoughts here are a bit irrelevant. I'm really... Uh, I'm really uh, curious to see or to hear what you think about uh, One Night in Miami. 
I think whoever cut this uh, deserves a raise. I mean, you did a great enough job selling One Night in Miami. It's not without its flaws, and I've heard that not only from you, but from other people who have seen it already. I have yet to see it, but I thought this trailer... I mean, look, I'm going to have some wisecracks that are very inappropriate for other subject matter with trailers coming up, <laughs> but the the fault of me trying to have wisecracks and trying to... We, you know, we had some fun with that game, or as Mike puts it, we can't do that here because this... Tra- I don't have wisecracks when there's just a really damn good trailer. I thought that's what this is. It really, really heightened my desire to see this movie. So I would say that for... To, to kind of manage people's expectations for a half a second, I would say that this movie is going to be as upbeat as this trailer is for a great portion of it, and then it's going to lull at a well, certain that's, point. And that's the balancing that's the issue. You've said how slow the movie gets in part, and that really, you, I did not get that vibe from the trailer. So I know it's somewhat deceitful on some level, it's, and, but that's what a trailer kind of should be anyway. Maybe not in terms of momentum with the film, but it should kind of be a misdirect to keep you on your toes and give you something unexpected when you watch the movie, even though pacing is not something that you genuinely think of when you're talking about those types of things. But this seemed like a very snappy trailer. And to weigh that against what I know about it based on what you've told me, it's 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 unique, I would say. It's different. I wish they would just re-edit one portion of the film, you know, cut out like five minutes or surrounding a phone mm-hmm. call. And I know thematically it might be kind of important, but if they cut out that five minutes or if they sped it up in the middle of the movie and cut out that lull, like this movie's going to snap and this movie's really going to play. And it's going to be one of those holiday films that I think people are going to enjoy. So I mean, bottom line is, I know we say that a lot here, but I, I think this is going to play well over Christmas and I'm excited to see viewership from Amazon Prime. I, I'm, I'm hopeful that Amazon Prime is going to brag about the viewership for One Night in Miami uh, yeah. post, post-holiday post season here. Show us your books, you cowards, you streaming service cowards. <laughs> Let Mike, them all let, talk. Yeah. yeah, let them all talk is the next one. Meryl Streep is going on a boat trip. So Steven Soderbergh is just Prince now, right? Like, I know we're not doing or as Mike puts it, but he do, he just doesn't give a shit what people say. And he just wants to keep pushing out content and trying new things and trying different takes on certain movies and telling new stories in different ways, right? This is like the last story I would expect from Steven Soderbergh. Same. The... Lucas Hedges is the nephew of renowned writer now going through writer's block. And, of course, we all know that when you really need to get a word count done, you go on a cruise <laughs> with, with Murphy two, Brown. Yeah, with Murphy Brown, <laughs> Candace Bergen, and Diane Weist, you know, with getting peppered with questions from your nephew, who apparently is being activated like a spy from Gemma Chan, who's the publisher. <laughs> I mean, what the hell's going on here? I mean, is this based on George R. R. Martin? Like, I really, I don't get it. I just, I'm fascinated to watch it though, because it's Meryl Streep, Candace Bergen, and Diane Weist. It's certainly more appealing than I thought a movie with this premise would be. I think that's a credit. I mean, it could be a credit to Soderbergh. I don't know if it's a credit to the trailer. I don't know who the hell it's a credit to, but you say this is the last movie you would expect Steven Soderbergh to do. You could have said that about, uh, uh, the, the Bird movie, the NBA agent movie, I can't remember the name of right now. I mean, that's I, I, this guy is just, he's like one movie every eight or nine months, it seems, turning something out that's just so radically different than what you would expect from Steven Soderbergh at this point. 
I give it give him a lot of credit, man. I mean the the variety and what he's putting out there. But uh, can we can we say something for Lucas Hedges as an acting student? And I guess he filmed all these in 2019. I mean that guy attended the greatest acting school in the history of <laughs> all point. apprenticeships. Michelle Pfeiffer in French Exit, and now Streep Bergen and Diane Weist, and let them all talk. I mean if he doesn't win multiple op- Oscars just based on the advice he's getting and the the, the work he's watching on screen from all these matriarchs in our business my god what is he doing didn't he do uh, francis mcdormand too with three billboards a couple years mm. ago i mean yeah he's been all over he's certainly getting his reps in with some of the uh, mount rushmore heads That's he has sure. been mentored that young mm-hmm. lad that young lad has been mentored great job by him <laughs> pieces of a woman michael uh okay this is where i get inappropriate look i know i need to be this is a very serious subject matter and i'm a doofus and i but all I'm asking you to do is watch the first 20 seconds or so of this trailer and pretend it's a preview for the next Aliens movie, and your perspective changes wildly. You, yeah, you expect that you better put a laugh track in there if you want to get a laugh. I just, I, I was horrified when I read it at first. I, you know, I texted you that, it, you know, structurally, I think it's a joke that works. I, <laughs> I stand by it. Right. But, you know, when I actually hear it it's even much more horrifying than it sounded in the beginning because this trailer is so dead serious it really is it's very heavy yeah i thought it was unjoke aboutable and you have never ceased to amaze what i'm hearing from you is thank you well all right we we kind of got to do a job here though because look we've missed this movie in in terms of the film festivals and we're gonna have to wait to see it and Ellen Bernstein and Vanessa Kirby have gotten a ton of Oscar buzz. So I do mm-hmm. think it's a strength of our podcast here, though, Michael. We got to do the Oscar pundit here thing here. And we got to, you know, kind of analyze these performances in the trailer. Uh, I saw, you know, some glimmers from Ellen Bernstein. I saw some over-the-top scenes from Shia LaBeouf. So mm-hmm. I, was actually, I was actually surprised that he kind of went so over-the-top. But the biggest... Surprise to me on this trailer was the strength, the defiant strength and sadness and stoicism and just cracks in the veneer to Vanessa Kirby. Like, I, this was not the exp- uh, you know, performance I was expecting from her in what is seemingly an Oscar, you know, front runner by, by, from, from many people's perspectives. I mean, the fact that she won Venice, this is an intense performance. Yeah, it really is. And she's obviously the headliner, and she has been ever since the Venice Awards were announced. I got to say, I was expecting something heavy and and, and strength in a performance from her, and that's exactly what you got, and you're exactly right. And she is the reason to see this movie. I think she's the total allure of it. But because I was expecting something outstanding from her in one way or another and you get it and there's every reason to think she's going to be great in this if you haven't seen it already and she certainly what you do get in this trailer from her makes me want to see this even more but i was more because i expected that from 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 vanessa kirby i was more interested in seeing what ellen burston can bring and seeing what shia labeouf was doing with their characters and i ended up i'm more surprised having heard the oscars talk for vanessa kirby i'm more surprised i haven't heard as much for ella Ellen Burstyn's character in this, from what I saw in this trailer, at least. She's doing some wild things from afar. And is that a situation like we had with Roma a few years ago? Yeah. You know, where the master shot, you can get a good performance despite being far away. 
Or does she get her close-ups? And I, again, it's one of those things where, all right, if it was such a no-brainer, then everybody would have her right. in the five right now because everybody's seen this movie. So, you know, we've kind of missed it. It's our fault. But basically, you know, I am not necessarily kind of writing her name. And could she get nominated? Of course she could. She's Ellen Bernstein. But, uh, you know, we're, we'll have to watch it and see. I do think that supporting actress is perhaps the most wide-open category of the big eight or nine uh, thus far, that's why I mean we were talking about Maria Bakalova perhaps breaking into right. that category for good reason. Right. So you know I do think that category has has a lot of work to be done yet, but it, it's it's exciting to see Vanessa Kirby's performance translating in this trailer. I mean what they leave you with lingering on that final stare from her, and she's doing fifteen different things in a, in a span of like you know four and a half seconds. I just, I'm just thrilled for her. I've always been a big fan from the Mission Impossible, from the Crown. I mean she's awesome. Yeah, I mean, like I said, she is certainly uh, the headliner in this, and she's the reason that you're going to end up watching this, and that's going to be the biggest crossover probably to Academy Sunday, so something we're going to have to keep our eye on, as well as every other story, especially the lead one and the main one in this. We have to keep our eye on what's going on with theaters, with Wonder Woman. Does Marvel respond? Disney respond? What's going to be the numbers from this if we get any, et cetera, et cetera? So as always, guys, we want to hear your thoughts on those stories uh, or anything else we do here in the MMO Empire. You can leave us all of those as well as any other thoughts, comments, questions, concerns on our social medias. We are Mike, Mike and Oscar on Facebook and Instagram at MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We are available everywhere you hear podcasts, including and especially the Apple podcast app. And if that's where you're listening to us right now, if you would be so kind as to go into the app and leave us a five-star review, that would help us very greatly. Michael loaded episode, a lot of information. Great job by you tell the good people what's coming next from us and what are some words of wisdom to go out on what's coming next well i I guess i'm gonna let the cat out of the bag i don't usually like to kind of tip off the collaborations because what if they fall through or whatnot but this is a returning guest for us and we're a returning guest to his show so i'm gonna say it Madi from the movie marathoners podcast we have been long planning to do something with hillbilly elegy because mike and i are such big fans of glenn close i mean there's kind of a a a miniature rivalry between us and film twitter we do not (laughs) go in for kind of the tough love on Glenn Close as much as some other people out there who we also love, but also Academy you know, Queens, a bit of our ne- you know nemesis. <laughs> but I, I do, I, I I'm really excited about this uh, crossover because I think we're going to do a bit of an Oscar lens on our show. We're talking about all kinds of segments that we're going to do with Madi on our show, and then we're going to do kind of the full review on his show. And if you listen to the movie Marathoners, he incorporates a lot of fun top fives. He incorporates a lot of filmography talk. I mean, he just did an episode on On the Rock with Sofia Coppola and he had the Latinx uh, lens there and their podcast so I, I, I'm a big fan of how he kind of works in top fives yeah. to a lot of his episodes so we'll probably do something fun uh, with Hillbilly Elegy times two and you'll want to listen to both episodes on both of our podcasts it's just a true crossover that I guess if it falls through now we'll just say it falls through but you guys know we love Madi and you won't be that well I mean you know we'll get him back bottom line <laughs> absolutely so fingers crossed there sir words of wisdom Happy Thanksgiving, and also stay the fuck away from your family. Stay the fuck away from everybody. Everybody has COVID. I got COVID, Mike. Yeah, I got COVID not because I went to a bar or a movie. Not for those reasons. I hung out with my brother Daniel, and my brother Daniel went to a bar, and he gave me COVID. So, uh, you know, I... 
I can't smell or taste. It's two weeks now. I mean, I'm I'm very lucky. Don't get me wrong. I'm right. very lucky. But have have a happy virtual Thanksgiving. Stay the hell away from everybody. <laughs> I think fa- stay the fuck away from your family just as a general rule for any <laughs> holiday is a good one. So Nobody's going to listen to me. People are getting mad at me right now. No, of course I should stay. But that's how I got it. I was very, very careful this whole entire time. Mask everywhere, gloves. I was neurotic about it. And, of course, I spent time with my brother, and now I got it. Well, like Can't, you said, you Taste the sandwich. You're doing very lucky. I hope you get recover your taste and recover fully. Uh, one Thanksgiving does get here. We do hope you, dear listener, have a healthy and safe holiday. And as always, when reality sucks, you can come watch some movies and worry about the future of theaters with us. Uh, avoid your family. I think that's the uh, that might be the title of this episode. But yes, guys, uh, we are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year round without the stuffiness. We will see you all very soon. See ya.